Hey, thank you for being here, those of you who are here tonight. And again, I know there are a lot of people watching online this evening because of the holidays and everything that's going on, so we welcome you as well tonight. Happy Thanksgiving. I didn't know if I said that last week, but belated, if not, happy Thanksgiving. Um, we're in a series called The Monarchy of Misfits, and so we're going through the book of 1 Samuel. we got two more weeks left, so if you've loved the series, only one more week after this week. If you've hated the series, we're almost there. So we've got one more week after this week, and then we've got three weeks of Christmas leading to our candlelight service. So we've been in the Old Testament so far in 1 Samuel, that's where it lies, and as we've gone through these series, there's some hard sections in this book of the Bible, and I've made a point not to skip past the hard stuff. This week, it's another really weird one. And I uh, am part of a Facebook group right now, and um, it's like for church technology and slides and that sort of thing. And so they asked this week, they put a, a question of the day out, and it was like, what's your theme for the weekend? And of course, most people are talking about Christmas. Some must have forgot Thanksgiving, and so they're talking about Thanksgiving this weekend. I'm in that other camp, but I can promise you, nobody is talking about the black magic woman of 1 Samuel the week after Thanksgiving and leading into Christmas. How does this fit between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Well, here's two rules to keep in mind as you read and interpret the Old Testament. If you're new to studying the Bible, here's two rules. Hold on to these rules for reading and interpreting the Old Testament. Rule number one, assume that the text in some way is connected to the person, work, and kingdom of Christ Jesus. Rule number one. Rule number two, see rule number one. That's the rules for studying the Old Testament. Assume that the text in some way is connected and pointing us to the kingdom, the work, the person of Christ Jesus. And so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 68 tonight, and I'm going to just catch you up at the beginning of the story, kind of what's happening. Uh, David is running. He's hiding from Saul. Saul is the current king. David is the future king. And so David is now taking refuge with the Philistines. You guys remember the Philistines. They are the enemy of the Israelites. And so David has now taken refuge with the enemy. The Philistines are getting their army ready now to attack Israel, and because David has been allowed to take refuge with them, they of course assume that David is going to join their side. Of course, David would never fight against his own people, but he plays along. And for now in this story, the writer just drops David. It's like, okay, we'll deal with David and his situation later, but let's fast forward, and we're going to talk about this strange story about Saul. Saul has been the king no longer going to be the king, and so he finds himself in this absolute, just kind of desperate situation. He's a shadow of a man that he once was. He's made a lot of poor life choices, and those have led him down into a dark hole. He's overwhelmed by those forces that have been assembled against him. His back is up against the wall, and so what you would say is, is this is a hopeless situation. And Jordan, can I get you to turn on the backlights? I, I hate not seeing anybody's faces, so the back lights there. Perfect. I can see you guys now. And Jeff, can you turn me down just a hair? I feel like I'm ringing up here a little bit in my ears. Perfect. So we're going to pick up in chapter 28, 1 Samuel, verse 3. I'm using the New Living Translation, and we're just going to go verse by verse through this story. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Meanwhile, after all the stuff that I just told you, Samuel, who's a new guy in the story that we haven't heard yet to this point tonight, he's the prophet of God that anointed Saul, that anointed David, that prophet of God, it says, Meanwhile, has died and all of Israel had mourned for him. 
So for better or for worse, in Saul's life, Samuel has been some stability. I mean, Saul has been kind of up and down and all over the place. Samuel has been some stability. And yes, Samuel has scorned Saul. He's rebuked him. They haven't been on speaking terms in some time, but Samuel was at least a constant in a life for Saul that was marked by inconsistency. And now that constant Samuel, he's gone. That's where the story starts. And then we get this weird line. It says, and Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. Now that fills out a place, right, in the story. Like, why is that there? And so it's setting the stage now for the rest of the story. I'll take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and, and kind of tell you where this is coming from. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, Do not let your people practice fortune-telling or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth spirits of the dead. This is great Thanksgiving um, scripture right here. The nations you are about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune-tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. So in other words... What this is saying is just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean you should be doing it. That's what God is saying. And so here we're reminded that Saul, as king, didn't only make bad choices. Here he's made a good choice. On this occasion, he's done the right thing, and he's banned all the fortune tellers and witches from the kingdom of Israel. Verse 5, it says, When Saul saw the vast Philistine army getting ready to attack, he became frantic with fear. It's an important line, frantic with fear. Fear drives us to do a whole lot of dumb stuff. Am I wrong? Like the culture of fear, it's rampant and has been for a long time in our American Christianity. And so we profess this faith over fear. You've seen the church, you've heard the profession, and it's true, but then the church allows fear to drive so much of what we preach, so much of what we teach, so much of what we write. And so it's gone back through history. It was the church feared communism. And then we feared the first Catholic president. Oh my gosh, it's going to ruin this country. And then it was fear of this group of people. And then it's fear of that group of people. And even right now, if you turn on the news any night, you're going to see some Christian being interviewed or some random church service where they're talking about fear of something. Fear makes us do a lot of dumb things. Verse 6, it says, Saul asked the Lord what he should do. And that's a good idea, right? He asked the Lord what he should do. Fear is surrounding him. He gets down on his knees, but it says, but the Lord refused to answer him, either by dreams or sacred lots or by the prophets. Long time ago, Saul had severed ties with God. He disobeyed God. He allowed his pride and his ego and his arrogance to begin to control his life. He has butchered the priest who would be able to be the ones that would read those sacred lots. And so in those times when God feels silent in our lives, when God feels distant in our life, that's a pretty good time to take an inventory. What's going on in my life? Have I been running from God? Have I butchered the church that He's given us to draw near to Him? Have I ignored the whispers of the Spirit? Have I ignored His Word? Verse 7, Saul said to his advisors, find a woman who is a medium so I can go and ask her what to do. His advisors replied, there's a medium in uh, Endor. And so Saul starts this story. He's like, the mediums are banned. No more witches, no more mediums, no more psychics. They're an abomination before God. That's where he starts. And also Saul, now, where can I find a medium? And his advisors, here's what's interesting. There's no hesitation. They're like, there's one in Endor. That's where the witches are. And so you got to wonder, right? What kind of advisors are these guys? 
I mean, Saul has removed the priests, he's removed the prophets, he's got rid of wise counsel. And so, they would have probably said, you know, remember, you did a good thing obeying God, you removed them all, this is a bad idea, let's wait on God to speak. But all Saul has around him now is yes men, people willing to tell him what he wants to hear. There's not a single person in his life that is willing to speak truth, that is willing to have the hard conversation. So that's the first point. But the second thing I hope you caught, and I think you did, how quickly his advisors were able to give an answer. It's like, well, Saul, we'll have to, we'll have to give that some thought. We'll have to do some research. We'll have to do some checking, and then we'll get back to you. No, it's immediate. Well, there's a witch in indoor. If you remember Prohibition, when we studied that in school, we tried to remove the temptation, right? And how'd that work out? It didn't work out so well. Everybody knew where to get the liquor. Here, everybody knows where to find the witches. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. And so in other words, we can make all the rules, the laws that we want. We can re remove temptation, which isn't bad things to do any of that stuff. But until we deal with the depravity of our hearts, the law or the removal of temptation is never going to change us. And so Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says, the mind is governed by the flesh, or the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Saul's mind is not governed by the Spirit. This is why he has no peace, if you remember back to prior chapters. And so here he goes against his own law. He goes against his own edict and chooses a witch over God. He's saying, if I can't get an answer from heaven, let's try to get an answer from hell. So verse 8, it says, So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. Then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. And so Saul puts on a disguise. He waits until dark. Is that usually a sign that you're up to anything good? In fact, it's usually a sign that you know what you're about to do, you're probably not supposed to do. A sign that you're disregarding your conscience, you're disregarding the Spirit of God. And so let's allow this story to sink in a little bit. We've got a king, he's sneaking off in disguise to meet a psychic. It's a walking contradiction. And if you've been in the church any length of time, you know about these walking contradictions in leadership. I'll just, I'll just mention one. I was listening to a podcast this week, and they were talking about this pastor, Ted Haggart, back in the early 2000s. He was like, you know, president of all these associations. He was the guy that was always on TV. He was the one that was, you know, the spokesperson for the evangelical community. And he preached against same-sex marriage, and he preached against drinking. And then he made national headlines in 2006 when a male prostitute alleged that he had paid him for sex for years and had purchased crystal meth from him. And then he later admitted to that in many other cases of the same. And I could give countless example after example about church leaders who have gone down this path, disguises and darkness to cover up sin, but we're no different. I'll just wait until I'm alone in a dark room, disguised behind this computer screen and disregard my conscience. I'll love my neighbor when everyone is watching but when I'm disguised and no one knows I'm a Christian, then it's on. Verse 9, I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? The lady replies, are you trying to get me killed? You know that Saul has outlawed all mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? Saul is seeking privately what he publicly protests. 
I was in the car yesterday, and I asked my family to give me examples of this, and, and the best they came up with was the joke, why do you never take one, just one Baptist fishing? Does anybody know that one? He'll drink all your beer, take two, and they won't touch a drop. That's the, you know, it's not all that funny, but that, that ser- serves the point here. It's like I'm privately doing what I publicly protest. So Christians, it's like, hey, don't lie. And then we're the kings of embellishing on Facebook. Or Christians, follow God's word. And then we privately just skip all the inconvenient parts that we don't feel like following. Or Christians, it's better to give than receive. And then privately, we never give a dime to anything. Christians don't judge. And every private conversation we have is judging and gossip. Verse 10, but Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, as surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. So Saul is in disguise, he's in cover of darkness, and he takes an oath in the name of God while he blatantly disobeys God. Do you see the humor in that? It's like a politician being sworn into office while swearing on the Bible that they likely trampled to get elected. Or if you look at the Jewish midrash, they capture this incongruity. They say, whom shall Saul resemble at this moment? A woman who is with her lover and swears by the life of her husband. You can see the hypocrisy. Verse 11, it says, finally, the woman said, well, those spirit, well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Saul replies, call up Samuel. This is where things start to get really weird. Right here in the Bible, in God's Word, about to have a seance. The living trying to talk to the dead. And we need to be careful when we look at a story like this, because if you're like me, we can end up going down a thousand different rabbit trails and let our curiosity kind of take us away from the purpose of the story. And what is the purpose of the story? To point us to the person, the work, the kingdom of Christ Jesus. Number two, see rule number one. And so where do we find the person, the work, and kingdom of Christ Jesus? Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. King James does a great job with it. It says, she freaketh out, is what the King James (laughs) said. This woman She's a a switch. She's this medium. She calls on spirits, and all of a sudden she actually sees one, and she's just as shocked as everyone else because she's seeing a dead man. I was watching a movie with the kids this week, and one of the lines was, it's only a scam if you fall for it. I think that's what's going on with this woman here. And so her whole life, it's just been these hoaxes, or, or maybe even some say maybe it's satanic power that has produced these images of people who aren't really the images. But whatever the case is, this woman was not expecting to see a real person. And then all of a sudden she says, you've deceived me, you are Saul. And we're not told how this woman puts two and two together, but she does. And she says, you deceived me. What a terrible thing to hear from someone. You acted all holy. You made me feel less than. You excluded me from your kingdom. But now you're the big fat liar. Verse 13 says, don't be afraid. The king told her, what do you see? King's like, blah, blah, blah. Let's get back to you giving me exactly what I want. In verse 14, she says, I see a God, little g, coming out of the earth. Saul asks, what does he look like? He's an old man wrapped in a robe, and the robe is a clear sign. If we've read this story of Samuel, Saul realized it says it was Samuel and fell to the ground before him. In verse 15, it says, why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. 
And again, I see, I get these weird pictures when I read stuff like that. If you've ever seen Aladdin, you know, that beginning scene, and they go out to like the lion or tiger out in the desert, it's who disturbs my slumber. That's what I, that's what I envision here with Samuel. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? And there's a couple of points we need to pick up here. Point number one is this is not a hallucination. This is some trick by the witch. This isn't a demonic impersonation of Samuel. Commentators tell us this is a legit reappearance of Samuel, which again can take us down a bazillion rabbit trails if you've read the Old Testament. But point number two I want us to pick up on is I doubt the witch has anything at all to do with this, and so don't be thinking seances are the way to contact your dead relatives. This is something God has allowed for a special purpose at a special time, and so what is that purpose? Saul replies, I'm in deep trouble. The Philistines are at war with me. God has left me and won't reply by prophets or dream. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. Saul's like, I couldn't get a hold of anyone else. They're all busy. Sorry to wake you, but you're my last resort. And do you see the logic that is happening here? God is ignoring me because I sinned and turned away from God. And so I'm going to sin and turn further away from God in hopes of getting God back on my side. This is like driving your car even faster in the wrong direction into an attempt to get to your final destination. Just doesn't make sense. Verse 16, but Samuel replied, why ask me since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival, David. Samuel's never one to mince words. He says, Saul, you chose your suffering. You chose not to obey God because you knew better. You chose to make God your enemy because you didn't like His commands. You chose your suffering. And like I told you, when I was on that side of the living, God has made David the new leader of His people. But since you have disturbed me, let me tell you something else. Verse 19, it says, The Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow. And you and your sons will be here with me. Where is here? Samuel's dead. That's hard news to hear from a dead man. Tomorrow you're going to lose your army. It's going to be handed over to the enemies. And you and your sons are going to be here in the land of the dead with me. So let me give you a quick sidebar. Samuel is making no assessment about Saul's eternal state, if he's going to heaven or hell. This is a rabbit trail that I ran down. I'm sure your mind might be thinking about it. So there is no assessment here by Samuel of Saul's eternal state. In the Old Testament, the dead were believed to go to a waiting place. And if you were good, it was comfort and blessing. And if you're not good, it was torment. And then when Jesus finished his work on the cross, sin's penalty was paid for. And those who believed in the coming Messiah, if you're in the Old Testament, then were ushered into the kingdom of heaven. So we're not making a judgment tonight on Saul's eternal rest. Verse 20, Saul fell full length on the ground, paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words. Here's the picture. This isn't taking your time, getting down on your hands and knees. This is your knees buckling, overwhelmed, falling to the ground. And we know this not been an immediate fall to the ground for Saul. It's been a slow lifetime of bad choices that has led him to this moment. And so the one-time king, the one who we were told is head and shoulders above all else, placed on a throne, anointed by God, is here consulting with a witch, laying on the ground, talking to a dead prophet. 
Romans chapter 6, I'm going to bounce back there again, verse 20. Paul says, when you were slaves to sin, you were, or slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. And so maybe there's someone here, maybe there's someone listening tonight where you feel that. You're like, how did I get here? How did I get inside this prison cell tonight? Or why didn't I get to spend Thanksgiving this year with my kids? How did I get here? Or why am I angry all the time? How did I get here? I used to be so happy. Or how did I end up with zero relationships in my life? I used to have friends. Or why don't I feel close to God? I used to. How did I get here? It continues, he was also faint with hunger, for he'd eaten nothing all day and all night. Why hadn't Saul eaten? I don't know, but it appears he's been fasting for this encounter, so it's kind of ironic. He abstains from food, this religious act and religious fervor, while he openly violates God's law. So it's just another example I see of Saul's selective obedience. Verse 21 says, when the woman saw how distraught Saul was, she said, sir... I obeyed your command at the risk of my life. Now do what I say and let me give you some, a little something to eat so you can regain your strength for the trip back. Throughout history, this woman has been referred to as the witch of Endor. We don't know her name. We just know that she is the quote-unquote witch of Endor. But this witch is the one who shows mercy in the story to a broken man. So I petition that we rename her the merciful woman of Endor. Verse 23, it says, But Saul refused to eat anything. Then his advisors joined the woman in urging him to eat, so he finally yielded, got up from the ground, and sat on the couch. And so tomorrow Saul will die. This is the last supper of Saul. Verse 24, The woman had fattened a calf, so she hurried out and killed it. She took some flour, kneaded it in a dough, and baked unleavened bread. She brought the meal to Saul and his advisors, and they ate it. Then they went out into the night. And again, if you can picture this scene and really the entire story of Saul and be unmoved by just the tragedy of it, I'd question whether or not you have a heart. Because this is a guy who began with so much promise. He had a good family, he had good genetics, and now look at him. He's sitting on a couch, a blubbering mess, waiting on this charlatan witch to prepare a meal that is fit for a king, for a man who knows he is not fit to be that king. I was watching a Beatles documentary last night, and this is the song, he's a real nowhere man, sitting in a nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. That pretty much sums up Saul's situation. But again, what's that most important rule for interpreting the Old Testament? Assume that the text in some way is connected to the person, the work, the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And so how do we do that in this story? It's the hopelessness. This is just a classic Old Testament telling of the predicament of mankind. Romans chapter 6, again, I'll reread it to you, verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. That is hopelessness. But, verse 23 begins with, but now you are free from the power of sin and become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. 
The Old Testament over and over and over diagnoses the disease. The gospel, the New Testament given to us by Christ Jesus prescribes the cure for the disease. And so this might seem like a really weird story for the week after Thanksgiving sandwiched between the Christmas season, but I think it's actually quite perfect. It's a story that points us to the birth of a king, to his death on a cross, then to the hope found in his resurrection. And so we're going to close tonight singing Amazing Grace. You know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Then that second verse starts, and I don't know if you've ever considered this line. It's, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." This story is meant to be a horror story. It's meant to be scary. Saul is told, "'Tomorrow you're going to die.'" And it's so scary that Saul falls to the ground. We're supposed to feel that fear. And I'm never going to be one of those guys that says, do you know what happens tomorrow if you die and where you would go and try to scare you into following Jesus because people have done that to me and it does not work. So we're never going to be one of those people. We're never going to be one of those churches. But to see the fear of death in this story isn't completely a bad thing for us tonight. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And then that next line, and grace my fears relieved because we don't get left in the fear. Fear can lead us to do a lot of dumb stuff. But fear can also be a positive if we allow our fear to drive us into the arms of a Savior. And so our story ends tonight with Saul being offered one last meal with his men before he walks out into the night, cut off from God, tomorrow to die for his sins. That's the hopelessness of the story. Saul has lost sight of any hope. But we have a hope because Jesus also had one last meal with his men. Matthew 26, verse 26, it says, As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And then he took the cup of wine, gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And then Jesus walked down into the night to be cut off from God, not to die for his sins, but to die for our sins. And so just like the merciful woman of Endor who offered Saul a meal, our Savior, seeing us faint and weary and fear-stricken, offers us a meal. And so I'm going to close tonight having the band come up, and we're going to, we're going to connect to the other side. But we're not going to have a seance. We're going to connect to the other side through emblems, through the bread and the juice. That's going to connect us to a living Christ who's on the other side. We're going to connect to the other side through prayer, we don't need any medium to come to God through prayer. We're going to connect to the other side through worship to an otherworldly God who hears and responds back to us in our songs of praise. So the servers are going to pass the emblems now. Please eat them and drink them as they come to you. And then won't you stand and join us in worship as we close tonight. I promised a special announcement. So Jordan, go ahead and turn up the back house lights again. This past summer, 
Uh, we began searching for a full-time pastor here to join our refuge family. If you don't know, and I think most people in the room do, uh, I'm bivocational. I have a day job. This is my other job. And so I, I've done both things for the last five plus years. And so we felt like we were a point in our growth that it was time to start seeking a full-time pastor to join our refuge family because it was never my intent to be the guy, the person on the top of the pedestal. I don't want to be the Ted Haggart falling down for one, but two, that's not building a church. We want a church that is here in this community for the long term with or without me. And, and God forbid, I see a spirit, I guess it says to me, I'm going to see him tomorrow. I wouldn't be here. And so we want to be here whether I'm here or I'm not here. And so we have something really special, I think, here at Refuge that we've built for the last five years, and it's a special community, a group of people that were nuns and duns, a lot of us in other churches or just not connected to any church, and we came and we formed this community. And so I think we have something really special, and I think there are other people like us out there that are longing for something like this. And to seek and reach those people, it's going to take more than, than just me doing it all by myself up here especially. And so it's not been easy seeking uh, somebody because as a church, we went verse by verse through a book of the Bible, a hard one tonight. And so we have a very conservative view of Scripture and really look at it hard and its truth. Uh, but we also have a very progressive view on the application of that faith to that Scripture. And so where it's a tough fit. And so I went through about 130 resumes over the course of about three or four months. I had dozens of conversations back and forth via email. And then seven or eight of those conversations became phone interviews for an hour, an hour and a half, where I would talk to the person. We flew in um, one family and a pastor and his wife and talked to them. And then we had another one come over from Miami and we talked to them. We've been seeking one person and God gave us two. David and Sarah Lau are going to be joining us in February as lead pastors here at Refuge. And if some of you may even know them, they're from this area. Uh, they grew up in southwest Florida, and they feel called to come back home. Uh, they moved to Miami, so they've been over there pastoring for the last almost two years or so through the beautiful tra transition of COVID. So they picked perfect timing to go over there, but they've been in Miami. They spent the last two weeks notifying their church and their church family and the positions that they have. And as you can see by the picture, they're a beautiful family. And I'll tell you, they're even more beautiful people. They're honest, they're transparent, and they're the perfect fit for refuge, and I can promise you, you are going to love them. And so I will continue to teach. I'm going to serve in the role as executive pastor. They will join me in being teachers and being pastors and shepherding this great body as we look forward to the future. And so I'm excited to announce that. They're going to be here in February. They're transitioning their family, so be sure you're praying for them. And it's just a tough thing. Five kids moving from East Coast to the West Coast of Florida. They've got a lot of things on their plate and housing and all the stuff that goes along with that. So be praying for them, but they're going to be joining us in February of 2020. What is next year? 22? 2022. Next year. See, I need help. Uh, next week, we're going to conclude this series, and we're going to be looking at the death of Saul, this tragic king who has fallen, and next week we look at his demise and his end. And so that's where we'll be next week, and we'll finish the story this week. It's Christmas season. We already got Christmas stuff up around here. You're going to be hearing the music. And so just remember as you go into this week that we do have a hope. It's given through the birth of a king. And so allow his grace that he gives freely to transform the fear in your life. God bless. Love you all. See you next week.